Just a quick heads up before we start the podcast, Jason's got a series of upcoming online and hybrid trainings. So the first is his 300-hour module one cohort is starting May 10th together, and we will close registration for that on May 4th so that you can all start together as a cohort. The other training is his Essential Anatomy for Yoga Teachers. That's brand new. That's launching this Wednesday. And then the third one is his 300-hour hybrid teacher training, which will happen in London this summer starting in July. So that's both online and in-person. Exactly what it sounds like. It's a hybrid. You can find information about all of these courses at jasonyoga.com slash schedule. Hey, everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti. Welcome to Yogaland. Hi there, Jason. Hi there, Andrea. Today, we are going to talk all about the hips and five essential things to know about the hips in yoga. But before we do that, I want to comment a little bit. So we did two podcasts ago. We talked about where how far yoga has come, essentially, like the You've Come a Long Way Baby episode of about yoga. And we got so many great comments from the community. I thought I would just read a few of them. This episode really resonated with people a lot. So first, I'm just going to quickly read what I, I posted on my Substack because it'll give context for some of these comments. So I posted a photo of me in 2002 in, the, in my mother's backyard in Arizona, and I said I was so in love with yoga at this time. Meditation was brand new to me, and I was, for the first time, able to shift away from a lifetime inner narrative that I was a melancholy, anxious person. I was able to view myself through a completely different lens, one where I could trust that deep within my small self was inner knowing, calm, and a wellspring of ease and love. And I experienced my uppercase self for the first time, the being who was not only connected to everything else, but literally was just like everything else, simple temporal matter that would exist and then cease to exist. I was 30 years old, yet I felt like I was only just starting to feel happy in my skin. I'll always cherish that moment in the time of yoga culture here in the U.S. because it shaped my adult life. I was longing for answers and what I received was experiential insight. And hey, in practical terms, it led me to my husband. But like all things, these were not perfect times. We were, all of us, obsessed with the poses, the shapes, the handstands, the binds, the amazing girls doing all those incredible things in those hardtail ads. We were also taught that yoga was an all-or-nothing endeavor. I remember an editorial meeting at Yoga Journal where an editor suggested a cross-training for yoga story, and I practically spat out my coffee in disgust. It was all yoga all the time, hamstring attachments be damned. So then I just ask people to comment like on, on how they felt and things that they noticed. And here are just a couple, a few of the comments. So, and I'm not going to say the people's names, just, just, I don't know if they want it, you know, if they want their name said on, on air. So one person says, what's the emoji for achingly nostalgic? Number one, I'm getting major hardtail forever vibes from your outfit here. Hardtail forever. <laughs> Second, everything, and I was not actually wearing hardtail in that in that photo, by the way. I remember that I was wearing Donna M, who is the small I, yoga I designer in the Bay Area. Donna M, I still love you. I, I don't know what you're doing anymore, but I should check on you. Okay. She says, everything you and Jason said in this episode landed in such a big way. 10 years ago, I taught 90-minute classes in a normal temperature room. Added music was an occasional treat. We chanted, we shavasaned, we held poses and did vinyasas. You could hear every single person's breath. Oh my, how nostalgic. I now teach teach one-hour classes in heat with energetic music. And you know what? I love it because I love that kind of good time. But with every single class, I feel deeply that something is missing, that I've left something important out and that I haven't been able to convey yoga to my students. I remind myself that most students aren't looking for a complete yoga education, and what I can give them in that hour is what they came for. They aren't looking to be scholars or meditation masters. Most of us use other self-care and self-awareness modalities like therapy and long walks. Oh, God, I could go on a long, way too long about this. Anyway, I'm personally grateful for many changes, such as recognition of bodily autonomy, which has impacted me in the way I teach tremendously. I was once captive to doing exactly as many of my strict teachers said and thought I was supposed to be the same way. I had no idea how oppressive it was until I finally got very badly injured and listened to that nagging intuition I'd had all along. 
I now investigate and question everything I'm told in yoga, and I implore my students to do the same. Now, yoga feels like liberation, and if nothing else, isn't that what it's all about? Well, okay, at least for me. I thought that was such so well written. a lovely yeah, comment, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's just yeah. so, and I relate so much to the being captive to doing exactly what my teacher said, and I do think that that, we talked about that a little bit, but that's really, is truly one of the positive changes that where people question it. And, and some of it is a lot of teachers fall from grace, like scandals and things that have happened in our communities that we realize that we do need to, to question authority sometimes. So I'm going to read one or two more. I started my yoga journey at 19. I heard about it. I knew it had something to do with stretching and meditating. I walked into the Iyengar Institute in LA and my life was forever changed. I remember asking the front desk what I should wear for this. This was the 90s and yoga pants had not happened yet. And they told me to go to Marshall's or TJ Maxx for some cotton leggings. There was no thought of the typical wardrobe that one now wears. After my first class, I could not understand why more people didn't do this. As a younger me, I was a seeker of spirituality, and answers to my questions about life and yoga covered the bases. It seemed to me at that time to be an instructor meant becoming a monk of some kind, the studying, the practice, but really living yoga. No social media to promote yourself then or ambassadorships, but living true yoga in your daily life. I went to classes regularly and met friends for life, learned as much as I could in workshops, and eventually tried all the popular styles, and then yoga became the thing to do for exercise over the years. I've had mixed feelings about the popularity and how it changed for me. In one hand, I and the other instructors were able to make an income doing what we love. In the other, wow, suddenly you were popular if you were young, attractive, athletic, aesthetically pleasing. Don't get me wrong, a lot of those people do live yoga, but I was never taught that that was the point. At one point, I thought about no longer studying, but as yoga, as usual in yoga, I found my tribe. I found myself again. The point is, for me, yoga got me through a lot of amazing life moments, anxiety, childbirth, illness, injury, loss, love, and hope. I love learning, and I don't see that ending. I love community that yoga brings to my life. P.S. Oh, my OMG, hardtail. Oh, that brought such a smile to my face when I read it. I couldn't afford them back then. And when I would see people in studios wearing them, I thought to myself, oh, they must have made it big. <laughs> um, I wonder how many people will listen to this. I wonder how many people have Googled hardtail <laughs> since, since, we, since the we ran that. seven or eight minutes that this so, podcast began. So I wrote back to that to Andrea. She, Andrea was the one who wrote that. And I said, I had one. Hey, Andrea who? Torfi. Okay. I said, I finally, after like five years, brought, bought one pair of bright purple hardtail leggings. And I wore those until they were threadbare. They were like, they were, I cherished those pants. That is so funny. It's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for all of your comments. And it's given me a lot to think about. And just, you know, Jason and I, obviously we continue to want to convey all the different aspects of yoga and hearing some of the things that the loss that people feel just I don't know. It just just gives me ideas for more ways that we can recreate that within our community. Totally. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's get started talking about the hips and you are going to just... Go take it away. Yeah. Take, take it away, away, Jason. Okay. So we could spend so much time on yoga in the hips, but we're going to spend about 20 or 30 minutes from my perspective as a teacher covering some of the, I think, most important essential dynamics for teachers to understand, but also students to just understand. And some of the things that, to be honest, in some ways, these are five things that I know now that I didn't used to know. Um, and I think that they're really important concepts um, and principles for us to understand and know how to work with this major region of our body. And the first thing that I think that we want to take a step back from as students and understand is that when we're talking about the hips, we're almost universally talking about a particular joint structure of the body. The hip joint is actually called the coxal joint, C-O-X-A-L. And I know it sounds kind of silly, but there was a long period of my life where I didn't really understand the difference between the leg, the pelvis, and the hip, right? I, I wasn't able to actually identify those things. And like the hip was, wait, wait, was this the hip or was it the pelvis? So when we're talking about the hip, typically in yoga, we're talking about the coxal joint. One part of that joint, the, um, that's a ball and socket joint. 
the dish part, the socket part of that structure is on the pelvis and the ball part of that structure is on the thigh bone. So the hip joint is the connection of the pelvis and the thigh bone. Mm -hmm. And that's like part one. That's like one A. connected to the thigh bone, right? But see, it should be the pelvic. That's from. It should be the pelvic bone is connected to the thigh bone. Gotcha. Anyways, that's that's one A. Part one B is that that joint is a three hundred and sixty degree joint. So what we mean by this is because it's a ball and socket joint, the main takeaway you want to have right now is when you work with your hips in yoga, you have to work with 360 degrees of musculature and connective tissues, not just one part. So for example, if I want strong hips or flexible hips, or if I'm sequencing a quote unquote hip opening class, I have to take a step back and say, If I want to open up or strengthen the hips, I don't need to just stretch one part of this hip or strengthen one part of this hip a lot. I need to get to the full circumference of this hip joint. And I think that one of the reasons this is so important is because colloquially, when if we ask like a thousand people that have practiced yoga or not practiced yoga, it doesn't even matter to like touch their hip, what are they going to touch? they're going to touch the lateral part of their pelvis. They're going to actually touch their ilium, which is part of the hip, but it's only a small part of the hip. Mm-hmm. And for most people, if I we just did like a, like a quick blink test and I said, okay, do one pose that stretches your hips. My guess is that 95% of those people would more or less do a pose like pigeon, where you're stretching the posterior lateral part of the hip which is the part of the hip that mentally, culturally we've identified as the hip. Yeah, I was going to say Bhattakonasana, like butterfly pose. People because that call gets it, to the medial As little part. kids, they call it butterfly. But, they, but they, they're thinking of, anyway, yeah. Right, so the, I, the, the, the important thing here, and where this really comes down to everybody, is think about it like this. Okay, think about a steering wheel, right? Andrea, if you're driving the car and you have your hands on the wheel, and you try to turn that wheel, but I reach over and I grab and hold on to any part of the wheel. Like it's 360 chop degrees, you. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would. Um, could I stop you from rotating the wheel by holding any part of the wheel? Yes. If I reach over and held any part of that wheel, it would inhibit your ability to turn any part of it mm-hmm. because it's a circle and mm-hmm. it rotates. So the the clear point I'm trying to articulate on this is if you want to have quote unquote open hips or strong hips, or if in sequencing you want to do hip openers, the only way that you can really do that functionally and appropriately is to address all of the hip muscles. And there are 360 degrees of hip muscles. There's an outside, there's a front, there's a medium middle side, and there's a backside. Mm-hmm. And if we just think about hip openers as the outer hips, then we might stretch that compartment and we might end up with some more mobility and comfort in that compartment. And that's better than nothing, but it isn't, it isn't fundamentally going to reset or rebalance the totality of that structure. To reset and to rebalance the totality of that structure, we have to actually understand the anatomy of what comprises that hip and address all of those parts. Right, right, right. Yeah. Like you mentioned that people, if you said, do like, what's a hip opener? They would often do pigeon. Do you think that we tend to overemphasize outer hip? Yes. At the expense of other? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So it's, it's difficult unless you have a really, comprehensive education in anatomy and sequencing, which sounds like a sales pitch, right? Um, But unless you have a really comprehensive understanding of hip joint anatomy, if you created a hip opening class, it it is highly likely to skew towards the lateral posterior part. Mm -hmm. And listen, that wouldn't be bad. That's better than nothing. And and like in terms of one-off things, it's fine. 
Like it's totally fine if I'm like, oh, I'm going to do some hip openers today. And I just like stretch my outer hip and buttock. That's totally fine. Mm -hmm. Just like if you went to a gym someday and you're like, I'm going to do buys and tries. That's like, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's way better than nothing. But in the long run, if that was, if that was how you addressed your hips in perpetuity, you're going to run into a real ceiling because you're not addressing the totality of the thing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very likely, this is extremely common in yoga. It's a generalization, but it's very common that the lateral part of the hip, so the outer hip and the buttock and the hamstrings are over lengthened in proportion to a, the lengthening in the front of the hip and the medial part of the hip. So the, so let me, let's do this real quick. So there are really five primarily, there are really five primary muscle groups of the hips. I'm not going to actually talk that much about the muscle groups themselves because I'm going to talk more about them as point number four. Okay. Okay. But you have muscles in the front of the hip. Those are mostly hip flexors. You have muscles on the inner legs. You have muscles on the back of your hip and you have muscles in the outside of your hip. As a very simplistic formula in yoga, we tend to stretch the outer hips and the hamstrings way more than we stretch the inner part of the hip, which are the inner leg muscles, or the front of the hip, which is the intersection of hip flexors and quadriceps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that makes me think about strength as well. Mm. So do we naturally tend to naturally be stronger on one region of the hip versus the other, or does it just depend on your body type or where you focus? I feel like up until recent years, there was so much emphasis on stretching and opening the hips, and perhaps that's we've overdone that a bit. So this is point number two, right? So we can move on from that point number one, and we'll get right into point number two. I'm going to lay out point number two, and then, and then I'll be more direct in answering that question. Um, so this is like, I hate to be the bearer of not great news, but the reality is that for most people with tight hips, your hips are not just tight. They're probably also weak. In fact, it's often the weakness in the hips that produces the tightness in the hips. So if we take a step back for a moment and- So I'm going to make a generalization. Okay. I This is a generalization, sure. so I apologize if I offend anybody, but it does seem like men might typically be tighter in the hips than women. And so is it even for like big burly men, they might have weakness as well as tightness? Yeah. So, okay. Um, I think whether we're dealing with men or women or, or however someone identifies, if you look at usage patterns, looking at usage patterns, I think is the best way at answering the question. Okay. So here's what I mean by this. If you have really tight hips, tight outer hips, tight hip flexors, tight hamstrings, tight inner legs, like if any of those things are tight and you have an active usage pattern that you can identify as making those things tight, they might be strong and tight. So here's a couple examples. Let's say you know that any part of your hips are tight. Like you're a self-identified, my hips are tight kind of, kind of person. If you think about your usage patterns and you think, well, yeah, I mean, I, I go to, I do a bunch of CrossFit and I cycle a bunch and I run and I hike a ton on the weekends. You probably have strong hips. Mm -hmm. You probably have strong, tight hips. Mm -hmm. If you do overt training or athletic endeavors that are producing strength in the hips, you probably have at least some of those muscles are strong and they may also be tight. But if you're the kind of person where you're like, man, I have tight hips and you think about your usage pattern and that usage pattern is, yeah, I'm in the car a lot and I'm at the office a lot mm -hmm. and I walk as far as the mailbox and on the weekend, like, you know, I get on my bike and ride, you have weak hips, mm, okay. guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Because these are, these are big, major primary movers of the body. You, the, the hip joint muscles, they're part of the locomotion system. And if you aren't doing things 
to keep them really strong, then they're probably they then they probably have a strength deficit, which is much more common that they have a strength deficit again unless you're specifically doing overt physical activities. I would say in yoga we can actually keep the hips pretty strong, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. As a total aside, one of the things I I like listened to this podcast with an astronaut a long time ago. And he was talking about the daily active regimen that they do to um, minimize muscle loss and atrophy when they are outside of the gravitational field. Three hours of treadmill a day minimum, right? Because they're not in a gravitational field. So here's the point. Like this isn't to depress all of us, okay? It is not to depress all of us because we have like technique that we can deal with. But my bottom line on this is if you're relatively athletic, like if you pursue physical activity that bring your hips and legs to fatigue several times a week and your hips are tight, you might have some weaknesses here or there, but generally speaking, you probably have plenty of strength and you may also be weak. Mm-hmm. And you would, and you would need, you'd need a, a higher level of diagnostic protocol to figure out like, well, exactly what is strong, exactly what is weak, blah, blah, blah. But if you have been like riding the pine for the last several years, kind of like walking to your car to get to yoga and then- Riding the pine? What oh, is that? Riding the pine's like, it's an old, it's an old- uh, oh no, it's an it's an old- Where does um, this expression come from? I'm, I'm trying to explain it to you. It is an old, <laughs> uh, it's an old, what is that, an analogy, metaphor? I never know. Um, it's an old saying that relates to people who are athletes that sit the bench all the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you've been sitting the bench. Okay. <laughs> You're going to shuffle off to Buffalo here. <laughs> now we're going to trudge the snow to our yoga studio. All right. Anyway. Okay. So, so. Again, you should know, like here, here's a, okay, here's a, here's a point. Tight does not equal strong. Flexible does not equal weak and vice versa. So oftentimes we have muscles that are simultaneously weak and tight because the hips are massive muscles that need to be used if you are not expressly and overtly using them to fatigue and they're tight, they're not just tight. They're probably also weak. Can I just, I'm sorry. Can I just tell you when you I'm, said riding the pine, you know what I imagined? I don't know, but I don't Harry think we should go Potter. too far. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like riding like a, a broom, like well, in Quidditch. Yeah, if you've been, listen, okay, if you've anyway. been riding your broom. Yeah, exactly. Because I think, let's just f- pause for a moment. If you've been spending a lot of time riding a broom, do you know what you probably have? You probably have strong inner leg muscles. Yep. You probably have tight, tight hip, flexors. hip flexors. There you go. There you go. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the hip flexors. When okay. people start doing yoga, they or Pilates often, they be, discover the psoas and they become obsessed. Yes. So tell me what you want us to know about the psoas. Oh my God. There's so much to know about the psoas. And the psoas is also one of these things that there's a lot of... I don't want to say this the wrong way. I think that there, I think there's a lot of rigid ideology about the psoas because it is such a dynamic and important muscle, and it is one of the, its marquee, right? This is the so psoas is a headliner muscle, right? Mm-hmm. And and you do your teacher training program, and it's like psoas, your happiness, psoas, your sadness. So as mm-hmm. future life, so as mm-hmm. past life, so as can't do a back bend, so as can't do a f- it's everything, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things to know about the so as is it doesn't work alone ever. You are never in yoga going to isolate your so as. You never gonna be accomplices. like it has it has big time. It hangs out with bad company. <laughs> you know, it hangs out with rectus femoris and the multifidi and the quadratus laborum. But anyways, I think the main thing. In, in in this not being a, a masterclass on the psoas, the psoas still to to this day kind of mentally intimidates me because it is so 
nuanced in its functions. Yeah. It it really is. And in its ability to do so many different things, depending on the set point that the individual is in. So depending on your spinal position and your hip position, the psoas as it contracts can create spinal flexion. It can create spinal extension. It can facilitate lateral flexion. There's just, there's Mm -hmm. so many, there's so many different things it can do because it's so deep in there. Mm -hmm. And depending on the positional geometry of the joints that it's pulling on, it can pull them in a lot of different ways. It's not like your hamstrings. You know what I mean? Like that's a pretty, it's a beautiful thing, but it's not that, it's not that nuanced. So I think, I think the overall complexity and beauty of the psoas is a little bit beyond this discussion. But what I want us to know about the psoas, other than those things, is that its primary job is probably not to be a hip flexor. It is a hip flexor, but it is not your only hip flexor. Uh, You have a lot of hip flexors, like a lot of them. I don't even know that it's the dominant hip flexor. That's probably more of the rectus Mm -hmm. femoris. Mm -hmm. And, And the psoas, when it is... Working as a hip flexor is also hugely facilitated by its uh, its uh, brethren, iliacus. So what does the psoas actually spend the, the majority of its time doing in modern culture? The, the psoas spends the majority of its time not actively flexing the hip. The majority, though it can. The psoas spends the majority of its time helping to produce dynamic stabilization for the lumbar spine. So the psoas is really day-to-day a lumbar stabilizer more than it is a hip flexor. And, And one of the reasons to think about this in two ways, if you're walking and listening to this podcast, the psoas is working, but it's working less to flex the hip with every stride you take. That's probably more pectinus, gracilis, adductor, brevis, rectus femoris. Um, The psoas works more strongly as a hip flexor once the hip flexor is more deeply flexed. So when when your hip is flexed closer to 90 degrees and more, that's where it's even more powerful as a hip flexor, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So what it's, it, yes, it's helping to flex your hip when you walk, but again, it, it's not, it's not, it, that's not, it's probably its main call. As you're listening to this walking, it's helping your spine stay upright. It's, it's a spinal stabilizer. Like if you look at the vast, it has, the psoas has five attachments to the spine. It has one attachment to the thigh bone. It, the, it's, it's muscle bulk is really tied into helping the spine stay upright Mm -hmm. and to be a shock absorber. You can think about the psoas as it lays in there. And if you have a little bit more anatomy knowledge, it it can be helpful because you can visualize its location a little bit easier. But the psoas, think about them as these like struts or as this shock absorber system or as this like dampening system. Like joists kind of, right? Yes, that that absorb stress. Mm -hmm and offload stress from the lumbar spine. So that's why they're they're kind of like dynamic stabilizer. So it's totally a mover of the hip. It's totally a flexor of the hip. It does, it can move the spine in a bunch of different directions. But day in, day out, it's spending most of its time actually just supporting the lumbar spine in an upright position. Hmm. One more thing, which is if you're listening to this podcast sitting, your psoas is not working. It's not actively flexing your hips. Like your hips are already flexed. Probably if you're sitting listening to this, your hips are flexed so the psoas is in a short position, but it's not it's not acting in this moment, right? It's mm-hmm. it's much more of a it, uh, it's much more of a a part of the dynamic the body's dynamic system to absorb gravitational stress and stay upright. Yeah, so much to say about the psoas, but that is a good a good key takeaway. Yeah. 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 Okay. Number four. Number four. What number you got four. for number four? The hip muscles have really misleading names. They do? Really misleading names, and it gets to me. 
It talk, gets to me deeply and viscerally. Not talk, all of them. Talk to me about this. Okay. Okay. So we're going to go anatomy 101. Okay. We're going to go anatomy 101. We're going to say that your hip joint or your coxal joint is moved and stabilized by various muscle groups. Each one of those muscle groups has a name, right? So in front, we were just talking about hip flexors. That's appropriately named. So the muscles on the front of the hip are hip flexors. And for the most part, the hip flexors do exactly what the name implies. They flex the hip, right? Fair enough. I'm all good with that. Does that sound sensible? You on board? A hundred percent. Yes. Okay. Now let's go all the way to the backside. So if we go all the way to the backside, you have an extensor group. Okay. Your extensor group is comprised of several different things, but primarily your hip extensors, they mostly do one thing, which is they extend the hip joint, which is to pull the femur back, to pull the thigh bone back and to extend the coxal joint. Your hamstrings, so semi-membranosus, semi-tendinosus, and the biceps femoris, those are hip extensors. We're good there. Gluteus maximus is also a hip extensor, which is good. It is totally a hip extensor. That's one of its three functions, okay? Let's do another name that is appropriate. Okay. External rotators, okay? You have six deep external rotators, and those external rotators mostly do one thing. They externally rotate the femur. Yeah. So to be try to be fair, those group names I think are fair, but the adductors and the abductors are named all bleeping wrong. And here's why it matters, because it's not just an issue of semantics, okay? So your abductors, your abductors, are the muscles that are the name of the muscles that are given to the outside of the hip, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And your adductors are the muscles that are the name of the muscles that are on the inside of the hip or the inside of the leg. And they're named after their supposed function, which is to abduct the thigh bone or adduct the thigh bone. Mm -hmm. To abduct means to take Take away away. and to adduct means to pull towards the center line or to Mm -hmm. bring it. I want you... You are a very skillful, knowledgeable, articulate, and dare I say, wonderful person. Oh, go on. You forgot beautiful. I, that's what I was going to say. And then I'm, I'm, I just feel, felt, felt like you were shining me on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want you to tell me one scenario in which you recently have used your <laughs> abductors, your abductors, to take your leg out. Like, when is the last time you have? You have just taken your leg straight out to the side as outside of like a yoga situation. Like when have you done that? Yeah, no, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It almost never happens. But did you walk today? Yes. Did you fall over? No. Did your pelvis just collapse? No. Okay. One of the main reasons you did not fall over and your pelvis did not collapse is because your abductors were doing what they actually do laterally stabilizing your pelvis. Hmm. Your abductors almost never work to abduct your femur. They can, but that's not what they do on a daily basis. What they do on a day-to-day basis is they keep your pelvis level when you walk. Because every time you walk, you take one foot off the ground. So every step you take, one foot lifts off the ground. So if you lift one foot off the ground... If you didn't have your abductors, your pelvis would tilt to that side and you'd fall over. Mm. You would fall over laterally. Mm -hmm. So your abductors almost never abduct. They laterally stabilize. Now, to me, this is, this is like, uh, you know, I'm contrarian and sometimes weird things get under my skin. I'm the first person to like acknowledge this, but The reason that this kind of gets to me as a yoga teacher, especially as an asana teacher, is because one of the most important things that we can do, for example, to facilitate balance in yoga and also balance on our feet in our life 
is to create more awareness and more strength of the lateral stability that those outer hips provide. And so for me, if, if, if we are always thinking about these muscles as, well, they abduct, they take the thigh away, then we don't actually understand their primary function and focus on them when they're trying to do that primary function. Mm, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. The so, other ones, the so other your ones, suggested name would be? Lateral stabilizers. Yeah, okay. Because that's what they do. Yes. If we're going to name something after the primary function of that thing, they should totally be called lateral stabilizers. Yeah, that does actually, even in my mind, give me a different perspective. That's what they do. Right. Okay, now the next one, which is a bigger one. The adductors. Adductors. When is the last time you have used your adductors to pull your femur towards the midline? When I was um, when I was in Milan doing a um, Versace show, and I was doing my catwalk walk down the catwalk. This is actually a really good point that I've not thought about. I wonder. I don't know. That was the only time I could think of when you would be using your. That's actually a really good point. So if you did like. <laughs> The prototypical- A really extreme, you know, model catwalk, runway walk. So don't get me wrong. The adductors adduct, just like the abductors abduct, 100%. But we we already dealt with the abductors, the abductors, but now let's think about the adductors. So our daughter, who is an equestrian and rides a horse, she is always using her adductors to adduct. Yes. For (laughs) sure. Right, but the thing to me, and this is this is much more important than the abductors thing. The thing is that the muscles on the inside of your leg, your adductors, do not spend most of their time adducting because because the the legs are almost never pulling from a wide situation to a narrow situation in life. What the adductors actually do is. All of the adductors also facilitate hip flexion, hip extension, external rotation, and internal rotation. So I'm going to say that again. As a unit, your inner leg muscles spend most of their time working with other extensors Mm -hmm. to extend the hip, flexors to flex the hip internal rotators to internally rotate the hip and externally rotate and external rotators to externally rotate the hip. Another way of saying this is the inner leg muscles are profoundly consequential in all of the movements of the hip, but they don't actually spend much time doing the thing they're named after. They help the hamstring, like the adductor magnus is mostly a hamstring. It's all, it's by, by people that understand contemporary, like that have like a scientific understanding of modern movement, the adductor magnus is always called the fourth hamstring hmm. because it works with every movement of the hamstrings. And part of the biceps femoris is actually bound into it. The gracilis and some of these other muscles that adduct, they actually, they're actually major hip flexors. And, and the reason, here's why this is so important other than like just like geeking out on this thing. It matters for sequencing because if I want a deeper forward fold or a more balanced forward fold where I stretch my hamstrings, I have to make sure I'm also lengthening my adductors. I have to prep my adductors. If I have always stretching my hamstrings, but I am never lengthening my adductors, then I am going to have incredibly diminishing returns. It's, It's this example of if... Again, if you want to turn your steering wheel and you can't turn it because I'm holding on, so you just try to like make yourself stronger and stronger and stronger instead of getting me to release, you have a failed proposition. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not working to lengthen my adductors, that's going to significantly limit my ability for my hamstrings to lengthen. Similarly, if I'm not working to lengthen and open up my those same muscles, my adductors, I'm going to have much more limited ability to do backbends. I'm going to have much more limited ability for my hip to move into extension because those, I think uh, where I'll leave this is length 
and strength on your inner legs are is integral to all of the other movements that we do with the hips probably much more so than just adduction yeah so what would you call them inner leg muscles okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah because because then because then because here's the bottom line is i think that when we think the adductors are adductors we don't pay attention to them yeah and when their role of external rotation, internal rotation, forward flexion, and extension, right? Mm-hmm. But if we actually understand that these muscles are integrated, are are integral to the other movements, then we'll stop ignoring them. Right. We'll yep. stop ignoring them. So we just call them inner leg muscles. All right. Well, that's, yes. that's clear enough. Yes. Okay. So our, your last point, number five, we're going to talk about our booty. Yeah. We could talk about this forever, but we'll keep it to a few minutes. You ready? I'm ready. Nothing good in life comes from having weak gluteus maximus muscles. Okay. There is no upside to weakness in that muscle. Zero. Okay. And there's a lot of bad things that can happen as far as the hip joint is concerned by having weak glutes. So let's talk about why this is. And then let's talk a little bit about how in the context of yoga, we can address this dynamic. Okay. So the first thing to understand is we, I mentioned the glutes earlier when I mentioned the extensors and the glutes work with the hamstrings to extend the hip joint, which is what you do in a, like a hundred percent of backbends. So hamstrings and glutes should be active in backbends because it's, it's, it's actually, those are the muscles that take the femur back, and that's what we do in the majority of backbends. But the glutes are triplanar muscles, which means they have the they have the potential to move the hip joint in three different planes, or more specifically, they have the they have the capacity to move the femur in three different planes. They can take the femur back, which is to move into extension. They can take the femur out to the side, which is to take the femur into abduction, and then they can also externally rotate the femur, okay? And the reason that this is so important to understand is, and the way I think about it, and I kind of teach it in all my coursework is, the glutes are, the glutes are kind of like the captain or the king or the queen, however you want to think about it. The glutes are, they play a primary organizational role for other muscle groups. So your glutes works with the hamstrings as the extensors. Your gluteus maximus works with the abductors or the lateral stabilizers to take the leg out to the side and to stabilize your pelvis and sacroiliac joint reason. Your gluteus maximus also works with the external rotators. The other thing that we want to understand is that the glutes are superficial to all of these muscles, which means they have a high amount of efficacy and leverage on the joint structure, which means if you have weak glutes or you have gluteal dyskinesia, right? Like you just can't connect to it. You can't fire it. Or you've been conditioned to, for whatever reason, not use these muscles. Well, your hip joint has to make the same actions that the glutes make, but then if the glutes aren't working, they have to make those actions with less efficient muscles for those actions. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. You still need to extend your hip. You still need to externally rotate the hip. You still need lateral stabilization. And if you don't have the big, strong, efficient muscle to help facilitate all of those, then you're going to have inefficiency in those movements. And you're also likely to have greater fatigue in all of those other muscles, which is going to translate to weakness and tightness Mm -hmm. because you don't have the captain of the ship facilitating that experience. Mm, Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And a, a, a partial equivalent to this are the lats. The lats 
for the shoulders. We're going to do an episode like this for spine, and we'll do an episode like this for shoulders. Okay. The lats for the upper body are a little bit like the glutes for the lower body, that they are a major coordinator. I think that's the other kind of word that we can use. The gluteus maximus is an, um, an incredibly essential organizer for efficient, effective muscle action for the hamstrings, for the external rotators, and the abductors. They are the organizer for at least 120 to 180 degrees of those 360 degrees we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And if they're not strong and efficient, then then you you are much more likely to overtax everything else and have inefficiency. Hmm. Yeah. I mean... This is just the... This is one of these things like... I don't even really even want to get into should you or shouldn't you use them in backbends. Like, yes, you should obviously use them in backbends in the same way that you use hip flexors and forward bends, in the same way that I use my deltoids to raise my arms, Mm -hmm. in the same way that I use my lats to pull my arms down, I would, of course, use my glutes to pull my legs back, which is what they do in every backbend. That's, well, pretty much every backbend. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then the next thing that comes up to go down this line is, well, how much? Well, we don't want to overuse them. Well, we don't want to overuse anything. Mm -hmm. But I don't know why when it comes to glutes, people feel like they need to qualify. Like no one has ever told you in a forward bend, like, okay, you can, you can engage your hip flexors, but just like, just a little bit, don't overuse your. So there's just a, I think that we have a, I think this is a place where we have a cultural. um, I think that's why I was pausing. Cause that's what, that's where I was going with it. It's like, we, we. So look at our glutes from like a a more vanity standpoint and, you know, appreciating them from like the, for the aesthetics that we might overlook their power and importance in our overall skeletal health. I, I think, Mus- I think, actually, I think, health. I think quickly I can break it down. I think that the concern about using glutes and backbends is it's misguided. And I had the concern, anytime we've talked about this, I had this concern for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Listen, everybody, I was wrong. <laughs> Just empirically wrong for 15 years. Well, that concern was, it was, was uh, it that was it would threefold, compress the lower back, which right? Which it doesn't. Yeah. Um, so there's three things about this, and then we'll, we'll let everyone We'll wrap it up. Okay, number one. Um. The glutes, because they are triplanar muscles, they don't just extend the hip. They also take the femurs apart from each other, and they also rotate the femurs outward, okay? And so there was a concern for a long period of time. Still amongst many, there's still a concern, but it's not – I would say this concern is not actually mechanically sound and rational, and I'm I'm being like as objective as I can be about this. Mm -hmm. There was the idea that taking the feet out to the side and turning them out has a compressive effect on the lower back. It does not. It's not the mechanism that compresses the lower back. Um, in the same way that taking my arm out to the side does not compress my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Like it just doesn't. <laughs> but if we had enough people that said that because they believe that to be true for enough period of time and we listened to them and we said, oh, well, this is, this is the case. And I'm not faulting for people for making mistakes. Like we all make mistakes. I made that mistake for a very long time. One of the things to understand is that when it comes to backbends, there is a mechanism that can compress the lower back. That mechanism is, mechanism is almost always the same, which is going too far. Mm-hmm. Going too far compresses the lower back not engaging muscles, right? And this would, this, would be an, this would be another thing that I would like beg everyone to do if, if they suspect like, I don't, think, I don't think this guy's right. Just stand there, just like literally stand up and firm your butt. And does that compress your lower back? No, it doesn't compress your lower back. So gluteal engagement in and of itself doesn't compress the lower back. 
because those muscles don't even cross into the lumbar vertebrae. Those muscles, that would literally be like saying, engaging my biceps compresses my shoulder. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Yeah. Like it's, just, it's, it's measurable that it doesn't. But is it easier to go too far in a backbend when you're really working every muscle to death? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. But this is where we have to have two things in our mind, which is engaging the glutes in and of itself does not compress the lower back. However, going too far using whatever resources we have, including our glutes, can compress the lower back. So the issue is not glutes compress the lower back. The issue is going too far compresses the lower back. So what do we need to do? We just need to not go too far in any pose to the point of compression. Right. But if we go the opposite direction, say, now don't use these muscles, we're actually making a pretty big we're, we're, I'll put it this way. I'll, I'll end on the say is, is saying not using these muscles does our body a much greater long-term disservice than using them like all of our other muscles with intention and skill. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So that's really helpful. And you also are going to release a teacher's companion in a couple days, right? That looks at the hips in different poses yeah okay yeah okay great so look out for that everyone and um i will put show notes with some hip related sequences that we have at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 294 thanks so much for listening and until next week enjoy your practice